Welcome to Beyond the Roadmap, Product Talk with AWH, a podcast for product people by product people. Join us as experts share their experiences and expertise to help you build great products. Hi, friends. This is Ryan Frederick with AWH, back with another episode of Beyond the Roadmap, a podcast about building successful software products. With me today, I have longtime colleague, friend, Alan Gilbert, who is a cross-country cyclist, a professor now. Is professor the right, the right term? Actually, my technical term is senior lecturer. Sometimes the students call me professor. I can roll with that. But when they call me doctor, I put up my hands and say, I, I haven't earned that title. I haven't really even earned the uh, professor title. So let's, let's not call me doctor. Well, a senior lecturer presumably is better than a junior lecturer, though, and and you know, and and you know, so we're not gonna we're not gonna record the video from this; it'll just be the audio. But you know, senior probably also better represents your your state in life too. Yeah, it's funny because the job description had all kinds of academic cre- credentials that I don't have, and then it said or equivalent industry experience, and then I said, okay, there it is, that's me. Bingo. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you've also been a part of leading, building engineering teams and products that have that have had, you know, I think by most regards, you know, good commercial success. And so do you want to talk about that for a second and, and, and some of the companies and products that you've been involved in? So we give people a little bit of a sense of the fact that this is what, what we're going to talk about and your insights are not theoretical. They're not academic. These are based in real operational experience leading engineering teams. Sure, sure. I can go through my history. Um, the earlier history was more hardware and systems, and then it was more... Um, actually, now that I think about it, it kind of went back and forth between so- uh, systems and software and systems and software, but I'll take you through it. Uh, so I started off at DuPont in the, the late 80s, and I started my career in robotics. I worked in manufacturing, building uh, connectors, believe it or not. DuPont was in the connector business. And I was in a program where I got to rotate to a different job every two years. And my second gig was in medical imaging. And I fell in love with that domain. I really liked A, product. I liked product more than manufacturing. And B, being in the, in the medical space, I felt really good getting out of bed every morning. So I dropped out of the program and stay put in, in medical products for the rest of my tenure at DuPont. And it's funny, at DuPont, really, the, the name of the game was to sell polyester. And so the way they sold polyester was to create these sheets of film with this chemical on it that would make images. And then there was a whole healthcare IT division to funnel images to the printers so that they could print film and sell more polyester. So I worked on several products at DuPont that were all in the radiology space, and they were primarily uh, hard copy printing. And we did a project um, at a hospital called Thomas Jefferson University Hospital in Philadelphia, and it was an ultrasound project, and we needed a medical-grade color printer, and there was a company in Cleveland called Kodonics. And what Kodonics was doing is they were taking a Kodak graphic arts printer and remanufacturing it to bring it up to specs for medical imaging. And I just fell in love with this company. It was a scrappy little startup-y kind of company. And it was also in my hometown. So one thing led to another. I ended up going there and I was there for 16 years. 
And that's where I really learned product. That's where I learned engineering. That's where I learned uh, management. And over the course of my time there, I did several different products. Uh, the main ones were printing products. And believe it or not, the one that I worked on that we released in 2002 is actually still being sold today. So that's a successful product if it's still uh, going 21 years later. Yeah, that's some, especially in this day and age, that's some good longevity yeah. for sure. Yeah. Um, worked on a CD DVD burning robot that would be in the film library. And so patients could take their images with them to um, uh, another hospital or common application was um, like snowbirds who would uh, uh, older patients who would have worked on in the north. And then they would go south for the winter and they'd want to take their images to their doctor down there. That was um, really prior to the Internet, at least in terms of a high bandwidth consumer version of the Internet. Uh, and then um, my last few years there, I worked on a product that took a while. It's really taken off now. And that was a very um, it's a very successful product, but it also is sort of in my heart as a special product because it's a strong safety play. And what that was, is a syringe labeling system. And the way things work in that domain is for surgery. And in the operating room, you have all of these very dangerous drugs that the radiologist, or sorry, that the anesthesiologist uses, things like fentanyl and propofol, uh, really uh, dangerous stuff. And it's highly controlled until it gets in the syringe, then it's the wild west. They pull the drug into the syringe and then the labeling is dubious and it's easy to mix them up and they use them in the heat of the moment when the patient's in distress. And so what we created is a kind of a continuing chain of custody from a safety and labeling perspective that would make a label for that syringe with a barcode. And then you could actually scan the barcode downstream when you administer the drug to the patient. And that way you have a record all the way through administration. Uh, and that um, was a great experience for me in terms of building a system with hardware and software. Uh, it had to be FDA approved. So there's a lot of regulatory overheads. So I learned I learned a lot on that. Uh, I was at Conox for 16 years and decided it was time to do something new. And I started uh, to network. I really was heads down and had no, no network whatsoever. Started to build up a network. Eventually, I got connected to cover my meds in Columbus. And that precipitated a move down here in 2012. And I worked to cover my meds from 2012 until 2017. From 2017 to 2019, late 2019, uh, really just, um, actually, no, I'm off by a year. Sorry, it was until 2020. It was into COVID. I worked at Orange Barrel Media and I worked on the kiosk business. So that was a system that was a large iPhone-like object that sat in the sidewalk and it had hardware, it had electronics, it had industrial design. I had to deal with city contractors and electrical contractors. And that was a completely new and different experience, very much product. And um, was there really when COVID hit, Orange Barrel kind of went in a hibernation because the whole premise with Orange Barrel is thriving downtowns. So that's their audience is thriving downtown out of home media. And when COVID hit, there was, there was no downtowns that were thriving. Uh, so I ultimately went to a company in Seattle called Boundless Immigration, and that was Pure Software. And that is a company that helps immigrants with all the paperwork. And you can think of it like TurboTax 
for immigration paperwork. So just like tax forms, immigration forms are actually worse in terms of the complexity and the sheer volume. And what Boundless does is it takes customers through step-by-step, question-by-question, and then curates the information into the ultimate form that gets submitted to the uh, what's called the USCIS, which is the entity that processes uh, immigration applications. Uh, and then I retired and rode my bike across the country last summer. Right. And then you become senior lecturers and stuff like that. Yeah, so and, that was and- serendipity. That was my network saying, well, I can't do it, but I know a guy maybe who can. And I got an email and five days later I was in the classroom. <laughs> Well, you know, it, it better better for something like that to happen quickly than slowly because it, you know, if you're going to if you're going to jump into the pool, you might as well jump into the deep end and show up in the classroom 5 days later, right? Yeah, there was uh, something liberating about not having any preparation time. It gave me an excuse to kind of wing it a little bit. Um and it, it's been fun because I've been able to infuse modern startup and lean and agile practices into what was otherwise kind of a dated uh curriculum. Yeah, well, and I think I think you, you know you reviewing where you've been, what you've done, the products you you've been a part of is is valuable because we're gonna we're gonna try to unpack engineering leadership and what good engineering leadership looks like, what bad engineering leadership looks like, what the difference between engineering management and engineering leadership are, um, and so it, it, I think it's good having that background for folks that are listening to understand that you you come at this from a career of leading engineering teams in various product you know, segments and, and sectors. So let's start with, are engineering management and leadership different? And if they are, how would you say that managing an engineering team and leading a, 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 an engine, engineering team are different? That's a topic that's really near and dear to my heart. And I've thought a lot about it, practiced it. Um, let's start with the management side. I look at um, management as sort of a specialized version of leadership, or another way to look at it is um, leadership as a subset of management. Uh, not every engineer um, wants to or should be a manager. And management, I, I, I define management or, or engineering manager as a people management function. So that's things like um, organization, recruiting, interviewing, hiring, uh, having one-on-one meetings with your team uh, and individuals on the team, by definition, one-on-one meetings, and guiding their, their work, their careers. Uh, it's inspiring people. It's organizing people. It's um, managing your career management, your career tracks, your career development for your people. It's managing compensation. Compensation is always an issue and it's hard. And um, somebody's got to do it. Somebody's got to do that job and it's not for everybody. Another aspect of it is is also project management. A lot of times uh, project management, I look at it as a flavor of engineering management. You're more managing the flow of the work than the people. But at the end of the day, it's still people management. Whereas leadership to me is broader. And I expect every engineer who works for me to, to be a leader. And I define leadership in that context as mo- having a multiplying effect beyond yourself and beyond the present. I uh, accidentally created a, a, or coined a, a term at lunch with an engineer one day, and I thought, hey, that's pretty clever. I should patent it or, or trademark it. Uh, I call it the, the leadership space-time continuum. 
And the idea is that as a leader within engineering, you have a positive effect that ripples out beyond just what you do through space and time. And when I say through space, that means other engineers. So a small ripple would be other people on your team. A bigger bigger ripple would be other teams. A bigger ripple than that would be other organizations within your company. So if you think about leaders in engineering who aren't necessarily people managers, who might have a, a, a strong positive effect, say, on a sales and marketing organization. A lot of times they'll be a more senior person in an engineering organization who uh, might help um, with a sales call or uh, might uh, do a lunch and learn for salespeople to explain the technology or who just sits in on business meetings and weighs in. They're not managing. They're not managing people, but they are leading because they're having uh, an effect beyond their own domain. And then the timepiece, if you look at junior level people, they tend to work on things that have uh, an immediate impact, but they may not have a lasting impact. But if you think about a senior level person, they might be doing architectural work or creating software or libraries or documentation or tooling that propagate through time and have a downstream effect a year from now, two years from now. So a lot of times in engineering organizations, you'll hear um, uh, people talk uh, in revered tones about somebody who did something three years ago. That person had a positive effect through time and is leading or has led to, to create that, that positive effect downstream. So things that you, you hear about all the time within engineering that um, are more than just writing the code, um, like architecture, uh, creating the deployment chain that the team uses for years, writing coding standards, mentoring co-ops or young engineers, pair programming, uh, or just setting a great example that helps propagate the culture. To me, those are all examples of leadership. And so I separate I separate that from management and every every career track, every career map that I've ever worked on, leadership has been a fundamental piece. And I've always expected managers or sorry, I've always expected engineers to grow as leaders in the way I'm describing. Yeah, I love that. It's interesting now as part of some of the, the, the tech layoffs that are happening that that there's there seems to be a push now for uh, I think you know Twitter sort of you know famously announced this I think Facebook has recently too where they they publicly said if you're an engineering manager who's not writing code you're at risk of, of potentially being furloughed and so there seems to be this this push now that that engineering management is a super, a little bit of a, a a superfluous role and layer inside of organizations and that maybe too many engineering managers have now drifted too far away from the actual craft of coding and of and of and of doing work how do you sort of see that and do you think that that's true that engineering management has has become a little too disconnected from the actual work and companies are justified in saying, "Looking, look, if you're not writing code, then then we don't need you around because you're not adding enough value." How how do you see this sort of engineering management layer value? I do think that's unfortunate. It feels like the pendulum is going to swing too far one way and then maybe come back. Um, in terms of engineering managers 
needing to write code. I guess it depends on your definition. Uh, I do think, frankly, that's kind of a dumb way to look at it, and I would disagree with it. Um, I guess I'm glad I don't work at Facebook. Uh, but to me, the, 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 the things I talked about previously, things like um, man managing people's careers or inspiring people or figuring out how to organize teams or, or just hiring and interviewing, all that stuff is still necessary. So I don't see engineering management going away per se. I do think it's possible we have too many managers. I do think, I do agree with the concept of, um, of engineering leaders should be coding. So if you've got people that are just, you know, they're not managing people and they're just managing technology, I do think that those folks should be coding. I think coding, getting your hands in the code is, is part of the job. But to me, I've always encouraged my engineering managers, the people running the teams and managing the people and doing the work I described, that they need to let go of coding. Otherwise, they can't fully commit to the other work that they need to be doing. I do think that we're probably too heavy on managers, uh, that we probably have... Uh, too many layers of managers. And uh, to me, what I would be doing, if I was actively running an engineering department now, and I, let's say I had to cut 50% of my budget, I would be focusing on well, how can we get the same value from fewer managers? How can we make those managers more productive? So I think the, uh, the days of having um, Five to six engineers per manager are probably over. I think a manager is going to need to handle at least twice as many people. There probably needs to be less um, hierarchy. And I think we need to look at, at um, ways of, of making managers more productive uh, and uh, eliminating waste. Uh, and so th things like making uh, interviewing, the interviewing process more streamlined. Uh, at, at one company I worked at, as a manager, I was monitoring over a hundred Slack channels and it was exhausting. Wow. Uh, and, and so, and, and that was just to sort of keep up with what's going on. Uh, so I think things like that, like really looking at, okay, as a manager, what are you doing and where are you adding value and what can you eliminate that is not adding value or has, is it's just not worth the investment time and focus on the things that really are adding value. And so to me, my response to, we have too many managers is, yeah, you're probably right, but we shouldn't have them. We shouldn't convert them to coders um, unless that's what they want to do. Uh, but we should have fewer managers that are doing those people management jobs and find a way to make them more productive and more efficient and organize ourselves so that we can have fewer of them. I, I, I do think that there's probably too many at this point in a given organization. Well, and I think one of the things that, that Every discipline and department inside of companies has 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 fallen prey to is people's career paths and trajectories, as you alluded to, uh, has been well. I, I'll be an engineer for five years, let's say, and then I'm and then I'm gonna I'm gonna step into being an engineering manager, and then I'm gonna manage a team of of five engineers. And and I think one of the challenges with that is. That was happening at companies, irrespective of whether the companies needed that many managers and that big of a layer, because it just felt like, oh, you know, it, it, you know, Joe's been here for five years as an engineer. He's been a good engineer. Let's promote him to be an engineering manager. 
So he stays and he feels like he's got some, you know, loyalty to the company and we've got loyalty to him, et cetera. But it feels like that sort of got out of control a little bit. And, and these little engineering teams got developed with managers that didn't need to get developed. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I think maybe the, you know, we're all humans and we act based on the incentives that are put in front of us. And I think too many companies have an incentive structure where there's more upside to being a manager than a leader on the technical side. So what I've always tried to do is to make the ceiling the same for both tracks, if you will. Now, at the end of the day, there's there's only one CTO, there's only one VP of engineering, um, what have you. What you could say that this that maybe the technical track goes all the way up to CTO and the manager track goes all the way up to VP of engineering. But I think the point is we need to remove incentives for engineers who don't want to manage people to feel like they need to become a manager in order to grow and succeed or or have prestige. And we need to lean more into these leadership opportunities for for technical people. As an aside, I've always disliked the term individual contributor. I think it's oh, a, yes. it's it's a bad term because what it does is it kind of flies in the face of this concept of leadership. Like if I've got a great engineer who is making 10 other people more productive because they set aside an hour a day to mentor and because they are creating standards that everybody else, the, the, the less experienced people can follow, that person's not an individual contributor, but they're also not a manager. Absolutely. Well, and, and, and over time, I've even gotten really uncomfortable with the, the, the label of, of, of employee because everybody wants to be employed. Nobody wants to be an employee. Uh, and, yeah. and so I, I think we come up with these, you know, these labels, uh, you know, like individual contributor for org charts and hierarchies and those kinds of things. And, and I think that they're, they're demeaning and, and in many cases and misrepresent what someone's real value and contribution to an organization is. I totally agree. Yet I've never found a term I'm comfortable with. I've heard the term associate and I dislike that equally. Yeah, I've now landed on team member. Yes, yes, that's that's usually where I end up. That's not that still never feels perfect, and I I always think I need to find a better term, but that's the best one I think that I've found. Yeah, because everybody wants to. Yes, everybody wants to be part of a team. Everybody wants to be recognized as a contributor to the team and to be valued as part of the team. So, team member is the best one that I've come up with. Maybe we don't even maybe we don't even have a word that represents it adequately. Uh, yet, what, you know, which would be surprising given, you know, uh, you know, how long, you know, the English language has now been around. But yeah. by and large, what gets used, I do not think supports um, what really is trying to be said and represented as part of, you know, that that label. And, you know, that's where we get in trouble with labels anyway, right, is that labels try to, you know, group, you know, something together and, and, and give it context. And, and often, you know, that fails and falls short. See, here's another way maybe I can capture our conversation is I would say companies should aim to have maybe at best 20% of their engineers be directed towards being a manager and maybe half of those will succeed and half of those won't. And the ones that don't have a easy path to go back to being uh, more of a straight up technical contributor. Uh, and then that leaves you with about 10% of your people as managers, which feels 
roughly correct to me. I think that's fair. Yeah. I think if, if you break it down percentage wise, that seems reasonable. Um, yeah. It, it's so as we're talking about technical leadership, a big piece of technical leadership is sort of setting the stage for engineering's work, collaboration, communication with other departments, certainly beyond product, but within product, um, unquestionably, right? Product management, design, potentially even, you know, testing and quality assurance and, and now with DevOps and managing deployments, et cetera. So how do you, how do you sort of see engineering leadership sort of greasing the wheels for that to happen effectively and well and, and to for engineering to be a good teammate as and you know the whole as the whole department of engineering a good teammate with other other teams within the company and within you know trying to progress a product uh, I have a somewhat or unorthodox view um, and I'll, I'll draw I'll draw a bubble around what I'll call product and if you've ever read any of the Marty Kagan stuff like inspired the inspired book um, he talks about product in terms of um, engineering, product management, and design. And uh, for the moment, I'll leave out, like, say, engineering's relationship with sales or marketing, uh, for example. Yeah. I'm a believer, uh, this is based largely on my experience, um, that product should be under one roof. And uh, I, I'm a believer that there should be a head of product, and I realized that opens questions about what that title should be. Should that be the CTO? Should that be the chief product officer? Um, it doesn't neatly fit in, in a lot of existing titles, but the way I see it is there should be one person that is responsible for building the right product at the right time with the right features to make the business successful. And that eliminates a lot of the inherent conflict that you get, I mean, imagine a, everybody's been through this. You get a project that's late and the, the CEO asks the um, head of engineering, why is it late? What happened? And he'll say, or she'll say the, the uh, product manager was uncompromising, set unrealistic expectations, doesn't understand technology, doesn't take what it, uh, under, doesn't understand what it takes to build this stuff. Um, and, um, really forced us to compromise to the point where it was technically unsound and we had to step back and fix things that we should have done right in the first place. Then, then yes, the head of product, what's uh, why it was late. And that person will say, well, the engineers aren't working hard enough and they don't understand the business and they're too focused on technical details. And how do you resolve that if, if you're the CEO? I like to put one person, there's the Apple concept of the DRI, the d d directly responsible individual. I like the concept of there's one person responsible for product and that person is responsible for engineering and product and design. And to me, the reason it's important to have one leader over all that is because these decisions, these trade-offs happen all the time, like several times, many times a day. And you need to have people be able to make these decisions on the ground and not have to wait until it comes to a head and you have to have the head of product and the head of engineering uh, make a difficult decision. You want to be able to make those decisions as, as they happen. 
And I've been in organizations where either the product managers or the head of product were actually very technically sound people that either were engineers or had a solid enough engineering background that they could work with engineers. So my ideal organization has a head of product that has the technical chops to run an engineering organization, has the business acumen to run product, and has the design sensitivity to run a design team. That being said, they're going to have strengths and weaknesses, and the idea is that they build their team to um, complement where they're weak. So if I was running such a department, I would probably have somebody who's working under me at a director level who really understands um, defining customer requirements and uh, running A-B tests and doing focus groups, kind of an old school term there. Uh, and I would have somebody who has design chops who maybe is running a design group, but it would be my responsibility to make sure that everything in product is happening the way it should, and the buck would stop with me. Likewise, if it was a person who came more from a business background and was a product expert, they would have a technical leader or, or multiple technical leaders who they could really count on to run the, the, the nuts and bolts of, of the engineering work. How do you? Because you, you you mentioned earlier that the fact that that you know in, incentives are often misaligned, and so when you think about inside of a product organization, engineering is sort of held to one cent one set of expectations and one set of incentives, right? Write clean code, get things done when you say you're going to get them done, right? If if you if you estimate you know something is going to you know take four weeks, get it done in four weeks. You yeah, know, et cetera. And then on the product side, you know, they have different incentives and objectives, right? Inside the product craft and designers have different, you know, sort of incentives. And so as you look at, at it through this lens of one person overseeing product and having responsibility for engineering, product management and design, Mm-hmm. Is it is it that person's then responsibility to go to the head of engineering and to the head of design and to the head of product to get those teams it, it, it aligned around either different objectives and incentives or to at least acknowledge we've got our own discipline objectives, but there's a higher level set of objectives that, that we also have to answer to? Yeah, yeah. You could argue that, well – Wait, if you just have one person running product that um, has three different teams other than them, that's the same thing as having three different teams. But I feel like the, the more you could push that down closer to the work, uh, the more uh, incentives are aligned and the less you have silos and the less you have different objectives and the less you have different teams that look at the world differently. So I, I see it's this leader's job to uh, find a way at, you know, at, at the end of the day, designers design, engineers code, and so on. But find a way to get everybody more on the same page, to get them working with each other, talking to each other, uh, aligned incentivized to the same things, thinking of their success. It's, a lot of it's mindset. So rather than, um, you know, the worst mindset would be, I write code, you tell me what it has to do, I make it do it, my job's done and get away from that and focus on the engineers living side by side with the product manager saying, well, our job is to, see, is to accomplish a certain business outcome. So when I was at Boundless, we did a reorganization uh, a few months before I left that um, 
I'm hoping it's still in place because I thought it was really clever. Um, we put one engineering team uh, responsible for customer acquisition cost, and that was their metric. Um, we took another engineering team and we put their metric as the time that it was a, a, a time that started when uh, a, a customer started filling out a form and ended when we shipped their packet to them filled out. And so their job as engineers was to figure out how to shorten that time and make it as quick as possible. So that trickled into user experience. That even trickled into our help center. Like, how do we make them, how do we give the help desk tooling to make them able to respond to customers more quickly? So by pushing the big picture incentives down and having a person who's responsible for that lower sort of in the hierarchy, then it facilitates and encourages aligned incentives. Whereas the higher up you have, or you have one giant organization that's engineering, one that's design, one that's product, and you, you somehow try and get them to work together in just a project context, it's going to be more like what you were describing, where, where they have separate in, incentives and are working counter to each other. It's never going to be perfect, but I think you can get closer to it and then have a more highly functioning organization. Yeah. So when it isn't perfect and engineering, how does engineering know when to be willing to compromise and make trade-offs and, and to, and otherwise be sort of firm in a stance around how something should be done, what the technical, technical solution should be, how long the technical answer is going to take. How do you, from an engineering perspective, be a good partner inside of that but also know when, you know what, we're, we're being asked now to jeopardize, you know, the craft and, and the product in a way that, that isn't ultimately healthy. Yeah, yeah. So I would say where, where that doesn't work, and I, I've experienced this recently, is where the, um, the engineers are told, you know, you need, you, you need to focus on these features. The business is counting on you developing these features and certain things that they feel are necessary get put off and get put off. And then something bad happens. You have a major outage or you have a security breach or something that it, the house of cards collapses. And then the business says, all right, all right, we need to call timeout and give the engineers a full sprint to to do what they finally want to do. That's very reactive. That's what you don't want to happen. So um, you need to make those those trade-offs earlier. So part 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 of it, and this is going to sound like an idealization, but you know, to create a partnership uh, between the product managers and the engineers. Um, the thing I like to do is when uh, and, and I subscribe to Agile and in particular like Scrum. I like the idea of two week sprints. I'm a strong advocate of taking any work that is being done by engineers and put it in cards and put it on the scrum board. And what I'm talking about specifically is any working down of technical debt, any writing tests, it should all be on the table and everybody should have visibility to it. So some teams operate like, hey, we'll give you 75% of our time and then the other 25% leave us alone and we're going to do magically the right things in the background that you don't need to hear about to me, that's the wrong way. You want to bring the product manager into the conversation and have that person uh, have the visibility to what the engineers are doing and why. And to understand it and buy into it. And where I've seen it work well 
is when a product manager is advocating for working down technical debt or putting in more testing and going going to the executive team and explaining, I, we need to delay the project for two weeks because uh, I'm not confident that we have enough testing to deploy this new feature. And I'd like to wait two more weeks. That's when you know you've won, when the product manager is advocating for, for that stuff. Uh, another way I look at it is the... Um, the head of product, their job would be to help negotiate this stuff and help, if you do have a conflict, to help resolve it. And I look at it like any other negotiation. If if one side or the other feels like they've won unequivocally, then you probably haven't negotiated well. So there, there needs to be some level of, of compromise where each side gives and takes a little and, and agrees to uh, even disagree and commit. But it's a matter of finding that, that balance point. And I liked... Um, at, uh, at Cover My Meds, we used to talk about this acronym WIN, what's important now. And that was a really good mental framework for having these conversations. We would say, is this important now? And if it was important now, we would not do it. And again, this isn't perfect. And what I'm not saying is I'm not saying live in the moment. And I'm not saying only do things that are short term, because sometimes something could be important now and it's going to take a year and you need to, to work on it over time. Uh, so some things are like brushing your teeth or eating your vegetables or exercising every day. The, the result is going to come in long-term health. And it's important now to do those things for long-term health. Can you skip one of those things here and there and get away with it to do something else that's more urgent? Sure, you can. But you need, you need to go back to it. And so we would always try and think what, what's important now. And an example of something that would fail that test would be, hey, we want to do a massive upgrade to the next version of Rails because it has some tooling that would save us some time and make us all more efficient. Is that important now? Probably not. What would happen if we weren't more efficient? The business would go on and probably be healthy because we worked on these other things. Uh, and those kinds of things, we would try and attach them to some other business benefit. So maybe the Rails upgrade would happen when there is a capability that is aligned with a big feature that you want to release anyway, that would be the time to, to do something like that. So that's another framework for helping to make those decisions. Yeah, I think that's great because I think one of the things that engineering teams often struggle with is how do we operate more efficiently? How do we become more productive? How, how do we have better tools? How do we even evaluate different tools and systems? And just like every other aspect of, of, of business, right, the engineering landscape um, tool evolution is continuous and, and happening faster and faster all the time. And so, and how do you, how do you account for that time in a, in a way that is reasonable and that can be you know managed, given the fact that your engineering team that's going to that's going to do those tool evaluations and those system evaluations is also the team at least you know if they weren't doing that would be working on the product and advancing the product. So how do you think about those sort of trade offs of how do you make engineering better while knowing that while you're making engineering better, you're not, you're not devoting as much time and energy to the product. Well, you, you have to do those things. You can't, one concept I always go back to time and time again is what's sustainable. Uh, and so I look at every, every, every product, every project 
um, has these um, ebbs and flows where there are, there are times when you really need to push to head a, hit a deadline or, or some important milestone. Uh, but you want to return back to this uh, sustainable mode of operation. Some people call it sustainable pace. I don't, I don't necessarily like the word pace um, or hours. I, I think of it as you know, fi- figure out what your organization uh, is going to do, whether it's Elon Musk's um, total commitment or whatever the phrase is that he used. Uh, but but what is your norm? And can you I look at it like whatever your norm is, whatever, whatever your basis that you return to, it should be something that you could sustain indefinitely. And part of that is self-improvement. Part of it is getting better uh, as individuals and as an organization. And and everybody needs to commit that that you're going to allocate the bandwidth, the, 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 the time, the um, expense to do those things. And then then you need to decide how you're going to do it. What what I prefer is to actually put it put it in your um, sprint board. Actually account for it. Uh, it's a good discipline to help make sure that it has visibility and be very honest and straightforward about. Hey, um, I am in this sprint. I am spending ten story points on researching um, a new um, a continuous deployment tool or, or something like that. Um, or their organizations, and, and I don't think it really matters how you do it. Other organizations could say, look, we're just going to carve off X percent of our bandwidth, and that's for um, engineers' self-improvement or team improvement time. Uh, but the point is, everybody agrees on it. Everybody agrees it's a cost of doing business. Get in a mode where you could do it indefinitely. Be willing to take it to zero for a short period of time to burst, to stretch for something, but then always go have the discipline to go back to it. And you have to avoid, frankly, an ignorant manager saying, um, hey, when we really needed to, we were able to get a lot more work done in these two weeks. Why can't we do that all the time? Um, the answer is because that, that's like saying I had more time in my day because I didn't work out all week. Why can't I do that all the time? The answer is obvious. Because long term, your health is going to crumble, and the same would apply to the health of your team and your people on your team. Yeah, I like your idea of getting th- that engineering improvement actually as part of cards and points and your normal workflow. Because when when it remains fairly abstract, i.e., we're going to carve out twenty percent of engineering time, you know, just to pick a percentage for engineering improvement then what ends up happening is, well, when? When is that 20% happening, right? Because if you're not managing to it in, in, as part of your normal workflow, then it, it, can, it, can get, it can get out of control because then nobody's really managing the 20%. It just sort of comes and goes in, in, weird, um, in, in weird cycles that sometimes goes way over the 20% and then sometimes is way under. Yeah, yeah. There's a, there's an adage that you can't you can't manage what you can't measure. I say this is sort of a corollary to it: is you you can't manage what you're not tracking. Yeah. How do you think about technical debt? And because you know, oftentimes this is where engineering really gets hammered, right? Is technical debt because you know you know you know, designers don't really have to deal with technical debt. I mean, they may have, they have to deal with a little bit of debt around the user experience and maybe a user interface becoming a little outdated. So, you know, there's design refreshes that happen, et cetera. 
product managers, I think, should have more responsibility for technical debt and helping to manage it and alleviate it. But often technical debt ends up in the lap of, of engineering and engineering is either seemingly sounding the alarm repeatedly saying, hey, this stuff is is way too, way too dusty. This has gone on for way too long. Or they're the ones that when it becomes an issue, that engineering then sort of takes the brunt of the the criticism because, you know, technical debt, you know, has now reared its ugly head and become a problem. How do you think about technical debt and, and engineering's ownership of it versus it being a distributed sort of ownership thing? Well, I think you, you just said it. You just said product managers should be responsible for technical debt as if that was a fantasy wish. But I think I think that's uh, a key to it. I my mental model of requirements, requirements definition for what, what teams are working on is it's a funnel and there's different entities that feed the funnel. And the biggest feeder of the funnel is the product manager, the product owner who's deciding what direction the product needs to move in order to advance the business. But also the engineering team is also feeding into that funnel and the engineering driven work should be part of that process. And it just never made sense to me that you carve off and say, well, this work that the engineering engineers are doing are managed by this person. And this work that the engineers are doing are managed by this other entity that the engineers themselves or another person. I like the idea and just kind of repetitive to what I just said of putting all literally all the cards on the table or all the cards on the scrum board track the technical debt, track it just like you're tracking backlog features, put it in the backlog. When you do your sprint planning, look at your technical debt and force the product manager to put eyes on those tasks and understand them. And not that you want to say, well, if you decide not to, it's your problem. But uh, the product manager should be responsible for um, the team working on the technical debt for the health of their product. I like the idea of you've look, you've got a team and you're responsible for prioritizing the work that that team's doing, all of the work that that team's doing. And if you have one person managing part of that team's work and somebody else managing another part of that team's work, it it is easy to end up with conflicts or too much or gaps. And if you have one person, I think it works much better. So again, it just goes back to put it all on the table have the engineers have input into the definition of work process. And typically their work is going to be driven by technical debt or other factors uh, that are going to at some, in some way they need to define the business value. So technical debt can't be, it makes me sad um, that I have uh, too many if statements. It should be, um, you know, we don't have good testing or vulnerable uh, here was a close call where we deployed with this bug that took us down for a half hour. Uh, it, it should be justified from a business perspective. How is it going to improve reliability? How is it going to increase customer conversion? How is it going to increase customer satisfaction? In some cases, here's how it's going to make our team more productive. And that sometimes is an interesting question because uh, it, sometimes it's hard to justify spending time that could be spent on generating business on making the team more productive. But at the end of the day, a more productive team is moving faster, which is getting features out more quickly, which is helping the business. There's an old adage, go, go slow to go smooth to go fast. So that go slow part 
is fixing the technical debt. The go smooth part is when the technical debt goes away and the go fast is when the team can move more quickly because they've shed that debt. Yeah, it, it's. I, I wrote a, a, a post about technical debt a couple of weeks ago now on the heels of some of the Southwest issues and some of the FAA issues because it seems like – and those are high-profile technical debt issues. Um, but technical debt, even though it has a label – and and you know and we like labeling things. It doesn't seem like we've gotten very good at at preventing and managing technical debt, sort of you know generally and very broadly, because then things like this happen. And then when you start to sort of peel back the layers, it's it's not that these issues of scalability or reliability or what have you or you know loops in code, whatever it might be, weren't known. They were known. The the, the somebody has made an ongoing decision to say it's a low priority. And after 15 years, then you, know, you, you can no longer ignore it because now it won't be ignored. And so technical debt, even though everybody's aware, it still doesn't sort of get the respect that it seemingly should deserve. And, and then it feels like it's, it's, it almost ends up being engineering's fault that, that, technical debt that's been ignored, right, then rears its ugly head and says, I'm not going to be ignored any longer. Yeah, yeah. It's a tough problem. I think that what you were just describing is a dynamic where the person who decides to ignore the technical debt is not the person who has to live with the results. Um, and I think that's that's probably the root of, of the problem where uh, most thinking of it like, CEO decisions for a publicly traded company where they're making decisions to please stockholders over the next quarter. But um, the guy who's running the company 10 years down the road is going to live with the mistakes. It's kind of what's happening at Intel now. <laughs> yeah, that, that you get to a point where, you know, you've got a, a scheduling system that, that can't handle, you know, a certain threshold of, of use. And, and then the whole thing, you know, sort of collapses and, and, and then you're just sort of, you know, out of luck. Technical debt is just, a, I think it's a fascinating subject inside of, of product and inside of engineering because it doesn't seem to um, get enough attention until it's bad news and then it gets a lot of attention and then we forget about it again because, you know, it's not in the news anymore. Um, so I want to get you out of here on this. Leading engineers it is it can be challenging. How do you sort of think about what is, and what do you look for in an engineer that you would want an engineer on your team? Ooh. Um, well, the first thing that comes to mind is a, that leadership piece. So somebody buys into the um, notion that their job is to grow as a leader over time and to have more and more uh, positive influence over other people to take what they do and positively affect other people um, throughout the organization and over time. An obvious um, characteristic is technical talent. Uh, obviously, you want somebody who can do the job. Um, somebody who's a team player. That sounds really obvious and, uh, and cliche, but I am a big fan of very collaborative teams. And I think collaborative teams uh, can accomplish more. It's the classic whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And that comes from people who enjoy working with or are willing to work with other people. 
I love how do you, how do you vet that? How do you determine that? Because you can give somebody a coding test and you can sort of tech their check their coding and technical chops. How do you assess for that team player that this person is going to come in and actually fit in well and be a good contributor? It's hard. Um, one way to do it is just um, a Q and A and interview questions, and and you don't ask them are you a good team player. You you ask you, well first of all you listen. So if they talk about their job, their previous jobs in terms of how they worked with other people. That's the best way. If you don't have to answer questions, but it just sort of comes out like, oh, this person really worked on successful teams. And when they talked about those teams, they used the word us and we instead of the word I. Uh, so that's just, you can, you can pick up on it if you're listening for it. Um, also, I like some sort of collaborative coding exercise. So uh, what we used to call a cover of my meds, a code day, which um, at that, at the time I did, it was like an all day um, project that they would uh, work with one or two people on our team. But what you're looking for there is for people who are interactive. And so when, when you're um, it's not literally pairing because the point of pairing is let's make it as good as possible and both sides contribute and, what you're doing in an interview is you're, you're trying to evaluate somebody, but still you're working with them. And one little nuance that, that uh, we used to uh, like to look for that I, I propagated through other interv- interview processes is how does the person take feedback? So if you are asking them about their code or asking them, what about this way? If they blow you off and just continue to, to go down the road they're going down, that's a sign that they're really not a team player. But if they say, oh, that's a good idea, yeah, let's let's try that. Or if they say, so, you know, if they engage in a conversation and say something to the effect of, well, I, the reason I thought about that, but the reason I chose this approach was as follows, uh, I think it makes sense. And, and there's a respectful and interactive answer. That's a sign of somebody who is a team player. But it's hard, and I think it's something that, is easy to make a mistake on because it is hard to bet in a day. You know, let's you probably have twelve hours of total interview time um, to project to twelve months over their first year of coding. It's it's difficult. Yeah, because it's one of the things that we see with some of our clients is, especially the ones that are building a product for the first time, either a startup, a nonprofit, or a, a mid market company that that has not not taken, you know, the, they've not gone onto the trail of, of having a software product and owning a software product inside of their organization before. And so they get to a point where, you know, they work with us and they then, they, they now have one and now they need to be independent of us. And now they start to build out their team. They struggle to then find the right, I mean, you know, the engineering market has been, you know, lean, you know, to put it, you know, politely, you know, uh, lately. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other thing they struggle with is they they struggle with wanting to move really quickly. So when someone expresses interest, they then they then sort of reciprocate with equal interest. And I think don't slow down enough to actually vet is this person going to be the person that we need to add to the team as our first engineer, right, on this product who's going to take the baton from this firm to now carry the product forward? And so clients often make a misstep with that first engineering hire 
do you have any advice for a company that's hiring their very first engineering person, given the fact that this person's going to set the stage for how they approach not only the development of the product, but their engineering culture moving forward? Yeah, I'd say rule number one is your your very first engineering hire has to be really engaged in the, the mission of the company because they are going to need to be very self-motivated in doing the technical work that aligns with what the company is trying to accomplish. There's not going to be anybody to translate it for it before them. It's up to them to do the to make the technical decisions, set the priorities, and do the right technical work to benefit the business. When you have a larger team, you can have people that are less able to do that and others who are more senior who, who can do that for them. But um, I recently did a, a consulting gig to help a company do exactly what you're describing. They had a product stood up done by a consultancy and wanted to hire their first engineer. And what I was looking for was an engineer who was really interested and passionate about the product and who could talk to the CEO and relate to the CEO and then walk away and make the technical things happen that reflect the decisions that were made with the CEO. So that, that, needs, that needs to be able to happen, that, under, that passion for the business, that interest in the business, and then the understanding to be able to convert it onto the technical side. Actually, that person, way at the beginning of the podcast, I described this head of product. This person is probably a candidate to be that head of product at, at some point. thing I didn't mention then is, Yes, that person is a unicorn, but but they do exist. Right, they are they are rare, yeah. um, but a, a, occasionally the, the, you can you can find one peeking around a corner, right? Yeah, yeah. Or or you, you grow them over time. You you find the potential and you and you nurture the person into that role. The other thing I would say, um, at the risk of maybe stating the obvious, is your earlier hires need to be more generalists, and your later hires need to be more specialists. So this person I hired needed to be back-end, front-end infrastructure, needed to be able to handle everything in the stack. Uh, at, at Two years from now, that person may not be the best in that company at anything. They may have now hired specialists who peak at those particular areas, of, of, you know, somebody who's strictly front-end, somebody who's back-end, somebody who's an infrastructure DevOps person. But the earlier hires, you need more just it's classic. They need to be able to wear a lot of hats and uh, have a broader skill sets so that they could do all the things that the company is going to need to do to stand on its own two feet with, with a, a tech stack. Yeah, I think that's all great advice. And I think the the point of being able to translate between the business and the, and the technical need is critical because at the beginning, when you're the first person in that role at a company, it's so important to get that right. Because if you don't get that right, and now you've got somebody leading, leading engineering who doesn't really understand the business or isn't really that into what's, what the business is trying to accomplish and what problem they're trying to solve, et cetera, you might have a great technical product. It's probably not going to drive the business forward effectively enough. And, and then in some cases that might even be worse. Cause if you don't have somebody, if you have, if you have somebody that's not technically capable, that's one thing. But if you've got somebody that's technically capable and the product is now technically sound, but it's not 
position to be able to help the business move forward, that even might be a worst case scenario. Yeah, a technically sound product for a company that's gone out of business is not very valuable. Right. And so I think this this first engineering hire is is as much art as it is science because it's something that that you know startups and other companies building products for the first time have been trying to figure out for a really long time of what's the, what's that profile what's that persona of an engineer that makes sense as the first engineer inside of a company with the new product yes yes ideally this person should also have the ability to hire other people and possibly manage them at least at, at first Right. And mentor them. Right. Et cetera. Because you also yeah. don't want a situation where you've got sort of someone that's coming in who wants to operate as a lone wolf, because that also creates problems downstream that, you know, ultimately could be, you know, um, some rust on the undercarriage of the company that you don't really know is there until you get further down the road. And then you realize, oh, yes, we've got our head of engineering now is actually kind of a lone wolf and doesn't want to, you know, distribute any of the work and responsibility to others because, you know, you and I both have seen that happen too. Yeah, I have seen that happen. And that person, the company outgrew that person. That person had to leave because they were unable to collaborate. Uh, and as the organization grew, collaboration was more of a, a requirement and woven into the culture. So let's talk about AI. AI is apparently going to change lots of different crafts and professions we used to think that, that things, knowledge workers and, and, and people like engineers would, would not be impacted by AI. I think we're now aware that AI is going to impact things like engineering and other, other professions that are considered sort of, you know, white collar professions, if you will. And it was something that took 20 you know, engineers to do moving forward might now take, you know, two engineers and an AI engine to write the code, you know, to accomplish the same thing of 20. What's your view of AI and how is AI going to impact engineering? And, and if you're leading a, a especially sort of new or young in engineering team, as we were just talking about hiring your first engineer, if you were building a company and a product right now, you've hired your first engineer, how would you, thinking, how would you be thinking about leveraging AI into that mix? Um, well, I think the, let me start with the management side and then I'll, I'll come back to the engineering side. Um, at the, the top of the podcast, we talked about the stuff that managers do and how this different from leadership. I think that, um, AI, it's, AI is generally not going to replace functions that involve managing people or working with people. You and I had coffee last week and we talked about how AI might, replace some types of doctors who are uh, heavily based in diagnosis, uh, whereas nurses, AI is not going to replace nurses. Nurses care for people and have direct inter, inter, uh, direct contact and, and work directly with people. And I think to some degree, um, the same applies to the engineering management function. That being said, what I talked about earlier in terms of making engineering managers more productive, I think AI could go a long way there. Uh, one example I'll bring up is that I mentioned I was following a hundred Slack channels. I would love to have a chat GPT interface where I could just ask it questions and it could mine the data out of the hundred Slack channels that the company has and give me an answer. So I think that AI will help make managers more productive and let us have fewer managers and people managing 
more people. It could help with the interview process. It could help find people. It could help with the interview process. Where I think it gets more interesting is on the engineer side. And the question is, is is AI going to replace coders? And if I look at today, the one that comes up a lot is Copilot. And the fact that Copilot is more and more being used to write code. And I think that um, it doesn't take a stretch of the imagination to get to a world where AI is writing all the code. Uh, and so what's, what's going to happen with engineers? And I think more and more the job of engineering is going to be to um, use the tools to generate the code. And there's, there's talk about like prompt engineers now, people who are really good at understanding how to ask the AI the right questions. And I think it's going to move something like in, in, in that direction. And um, one thing that an example of that might be, what if you could write really great user stories and put them into the AI and then in five minutes, all your code comes out and your features implemented. So I do think it's going to be something like that. I also think there's going to be stuff that we don't even really have the mental model to fathom right now. But I see the future of engineering as being able to harness the AI to be way more productive, much in the way, think about, imagine uh, in the year 2000, uh, writing a web application from scratch versus now using Ruby on Rails to generate a web application. You could probably do it, I don't know, 20 times faster now than you could before. So I think that there's going to be new tools that let engineers develop code 10 times, 100 times faster than we're doing now, leveraging these tools. And I think that's going to be the the new model for engineering. So engineering is going to move more, even more toward as it as it's as it has been, and now it's going to even move more toward architecture and integration and sort of knowing sort of what to use where and and appropriateness, you know, et cetera, because I think we're also going to get to the point there's going to be lots more widgets and there's going to be l- many more code repositories out there of things that you can that you can go leverage that some AI engines already built to solve that problem and to perform that functionality somewhere else that you're now going to just be able to go maybe license, you know, you know I think I think the software coding landscape of business model and commerce is probably also going to change because why would you even have an AI AI engine write a piece of functionality that an AI engine has already written for a thousand other companies that you can now sort of go into an AI code marketplace and potentially just license that code. I don't know, because as you said, it's hard to comprehend where all of this is going to go because if, if you get into a scenario like that, then, well, who, who owns that code? Who owns the copyright? If you have a license to it, does that give you the ability to do anything you, you want with that AI generated code inside of your product? What are the limitations around it? Who do you have to credit? You know, yada, yada. Yeah. So, Oh boy. I, I, oh boy. Attribution is such an interesting, we could do a whole podcast on attribution for, absolutely. for uh, the um, large language models, right? So when you get in, so when you get into the AI's writing code, right? Who gets credit for writing the code? The original AI, 
the the engineer who took that code and then modified it slightly and then then puts it back out into the world right it, it it's it's almost like we're going to get into this weird nft environment for code potentially right where there's going to be all these code sort of packets sitting around that have been that were originally ai gener- generated that then got modified in some way but you know, and, and maybe it's just the next evolution of uh, next evolution of open source, and and open source is now maybe finally going to have its you know day in the sun where open source is going to be the rule rather than the exception. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, there's a lot of really interesting ethical and sort of who owns what paradigm questions here. It, it, it may, maybe maybe there's maybe there's some world where we tag stuff as open source and it's fair game and there's other stuff gets tagged as pr- proprietary, just like we can tag a pa- page not to be crawled by Google. And it's, it's not, we may need to put some mechanisms in place to protect intellectual property in a way that doesn't exist right now. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's going to be fascinating. And, and there's anyone that says they know how it's going to play out and where it's going to go other than it, it's, it's going to be, enormously impactful, but being able to connect the dots and say, this is, this is the end state and the place that we're going to end up. I think anybody who, who says they, they know that is, is kidding themselves and kidding, you know, the, the people that they're speaking to. Um, it, it's going to, it's going to change engineering leadership too. Right? I mean, because if you have that AI layer as part of an engineering operation, then, you know, how does that sort of impact the way that the teams are structured and the, you manage, you manage someone's use and responsibility of an AI generating code engine, right? That there's like a whole domain there that is, is going to be explored, experimented with, et cetera. That's how, you know, you're, you're having, um, that, that you're working in fun times. If the, if the rules don't seem to apply anymore because things are changing so fast, that's when it's really interesting. And that that's um, where it's fun, and that's where great companies emerge who are able to thrive in the new environment. Yeah, for sure. Alan, great conversation. Thank you. Where uh, where can people get a hold of you if they want to continue the conversation? Do they show up in your class at your class at the <laughs> Ohio State University, or can they do do through so uh, some digital means? Yeah, so um, I am on Twitter as long as Twitter is a thing. So I'm uh, at AJ Gilbert. I'm also on LinkedIn at AJ Gilbert. I also have a consulting company where I help people with all the stuff we're talking about, help companies with that stuff and more. Uh, that's called Swift Current Partners. And the website is swiftcurrent.partners. And uh, I also have a blog where I talk about all this stuff and you can find a link to it through, through Twitter or LinkedIn. Awesome. And some of the things that we've talked about are in uh, some blog posts that Alan's um, already pu- uh, published. So go get some more context and dig into it deeper. Alan, thanks very much. Enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, Ryan. It's been a ton of fun. Need some help with product? AWH is a digital product consulting, user experience, and software development firm here to help you create great digital products. Check out www.awh.net or follow us on Twitter at awhnet to learn more.